Listen now to the Word of God, Revelation chapters 15 and 16. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, True and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, 
And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty." Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So reads God's most holy word. When the judgment of God was about to fall on Jesus for the sins of all who believe, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples to pray. Mark, in his gospel, records that Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray, and he took with him the inner circle, Peter and James and John the human author of Revelation. And Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible... The hour of judgment might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And then he came back and found his closest friends sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? 
Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Three times this happened before Jesus finally said, it is enough, the hour has come, and his father's judgment began to fall. Our hearts break as we hear this text. We're frustrated with the disciples that that they couldn't find the strength to stand present with their Lord in prayer at His greatest hour of need. But at the same time, we are also painfully aware, painfully aware of how often we do the very same or, or similar things, caving in when it's time to stand tall or falling asleep when it's time to stay awake. In our text today, as we just read it, judgment is about to fall once again. Final judgment on this world. Final judgment which was anticipated in the judgment that fell on Jesus. Confirmed by the judgment that fell on Jesus. Confirming that the judgment of God surely will come and will fall on all those for whom it didn't fall on Jesus. And it's amazing what believers hear that should be our response to all of this, what we hear right here in this text of Revelation 15 and 16, that should be our response as we see the indicators that that inevitable and unavoidable judgment that will fall is beginning to fall. We're told what to do. So what is our calling in the last days? Let's walk through this text and see. We'll see it in context as we move through it, as we hear the judgment and the instruction to the people of God on what to do when the judgment of God begins to fall. We have a two-part outline this morning. It's very simple. We just recognize the break between chapters 15 and 16. Chapter 15 is much briefer. It's a setup. It's a prologue, an intro, maybe even an overture to chapter 16, so we'll just call chapter 15, preparing for the end, and then chapter 16, initiating the end, and we may draw a little bit of attention to that, but primarily it's a progression of thought that we just want to follow this morning, preparing for the end, chapter 15. And as we have just read, I'm not going to read the text again for you through the course of the message, except in a few different places this morning. Mostly I'm going to comment, so I'd encourage you to just keep the text open in front of you, and I'll be making reference to verses as we pass through them. The whole of chapters 15 and 16, though, together as a unit, ring with a tone of finality 
You can hear it. And chapter 15 opens with a third great and amazing sign, as it is called here in verse 1. A great and amazing sign that appeared in heaven. The first two were both in chapter 12, just a couple of verses apart. The woman and then the dragon. Great and amazing signs that appeared in heaven. Now we have a third one. This sign introduces seven new angels that we've not met prior. These are new ones. And they bring the seven last plagues called such because they finish the outpouring of the wrath of God on earth. That's what we learn in verse 1, and already we're set up with that tone of finality as we move through these chapters. The sea of glass mingled with fire here in verse 2 is quite likely the very same as the sea of glass that appeared back in chapter 4, verse 6, in the throne room of God. And many believe that those who had conquered, who were standing beside this sea here in Revelation 15, verse 2, are the very same ones as the great multitude that no one could number back in chapter 7. Those called martyrs by virtue of their connection or our connecting them with the souls that were under the altar back in chapter 6 as the seals were being opened. And we believe, as we move through this text together, that this is one and the same group with 144,000 from the first half of chapter 7, those who were on earth at that time, but as we saw them last week in chapter 14, are now seen with Jesus in heaven. And as we saw last week in chapter 14, verse 3, they were singing a new song at that time. We called it the song of the redeemed. And they were joining in with the four living creatures and the 24 elders who were singing that song back in chapter 5. Just trying to put together some of the themes as we get to this place that clearly rings with finality. And if all of this is so, everything is so, these connections that I've just mentioned, the crowds and who they are and where they're standing, standing before the throne of God here in chapter 15, if all of this is so, then they're continuing to sing as we meet them here. And here, though, they are singing what is called the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, making it sound like this is one and the same song that's being sung. But the song of Moses, that, that may refer actually to the song of Moses and Miriam back in Exodus chapter 15, which celebrated the triumph of God in Egypt, the triumph of God over Pharaoh. Perhaps it was that song of Moses that's being sung. For truly the, the, the echoes of the Exodus and Israel coming out of Egypt are all through this section as we've noted on many occasions. Or it may be the song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32, a song that gives a thorough review of Israel's history and God's faithfulness to them throughout. That could be the song of Moses that's being referred to here. But either way, who is singing this song? 
except this multitude standing beside the sea of glass mixed with fire in the very presence of God as final judgment is about to be poured out. Either way, God's old covenant and new covenant people right here are singing together, whether separate songs or together, and it seems like together, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, singing together of the salvation that both have received in Christ, fulfilling God's promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, creating in Christ one new man in place of the two, Jew and Gentile, together with the dividing wall of hostility broken down between them in the body of Christ on the cross. And here they're worshiping God together as final judgment is being prepared. The content of at least the song of the Lamb, if not the two songs together, seems to be what follows in the text here, verses 3 and 4. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and, give, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. This is then the prelude to his just and final judgments that are recorded in chapter 16. The sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven here might be translated the sanctuary which is the tabernacle. That's the way it could be translated. The sanctuary is the tent of witness as the heavenly equivalent of the tabernacle that was with Israel in the wilderness. That's the way one commentator put it, and I think that's a clear and discernible bottom line. This is the place where God dwells. This is heaven. This is the throne room of God, the very presence of God who is orchestrating all of this final conclusion to the plan and purposes that He has realized throughout world history and throughout redemption history. This is where God's Word goes forth. It goes forth from this place, the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven. And these seven angels are impressive. Although the color of their raiment isn't mentioned here, it's called pure bright linen. In verse 6, suggesting, as many have noted, just unassailable purity. And they have golden sashes across their chests, suggesting perhaps military, perhaps priesthood, perhaps royalty. But I think even more clearly, recalling the description of Jesus back in chapter 1 as John first had that vision, and in John 1.13 as the sash went across his chest, I believe these are identified as representatives from the very presence of God Seven bowls full of the wrath of God were doled out by one of the four living creatures, verse 7, the highest order of angels that we have yet 
identified, discerned so by their proximity to the throne from the very beginning as we first see the throne room of God in chapter 4. And the sanctuary, we're told here, filled with smoke from the glory of God and from the power, from His power, such that no one could enter until the seven last plagues of the seven angels were finished. This recalls with virtually identical language the tent of meeting, Exodus 40, and the temple, 1 Kings 8, Isaiah 6, where the presence of the glory of God was visibly manifest in what's called smoke that filled the temple so thickly that no one could enter. At that point, it was the presence of God coming upon the place that He had designated to dwell among His people. And here it's happening in the presence of God, this manifestation of impenetrable holiness. just before final judgment is poured out and the history of this earth comes to a close. That's the preamble. That's the prelude, the overture, introducing the themes that will now be worked into the melodies of chapter 16. So now we're ready for the beginning of the end. Chapter 16. Chapter 16 might actually be called the great chapter, not necessarily so because of its content as such, but because some form of the Greek word megas, great, is used ten times in this brief chapter. Ten times in chapter 16 alone, after it's already appeared twice in chapter 15, the, the great and amazing language, both times that word appeared, verse 1 and verse 3 of chapter 15, now ten times in chapter 16. It's translated differently in different places. If you like, I'll, I'll walk through them quickly and you can underline them, each of them the same Greek root. First, the loud voice in verse 1, loud, the great voice. Second, the fierce heat, verse 9, fierce is that same word. Verse 12, the great river. Verse 14, the great day of God the Almighty. Verse 17, another loud voice or great voice. Verse 18, the great earthquake. Verse 19, two appearances, the great city as it opens and then Babylon the great. And then verse 21, the final two, great hailstones and the severe plague. Severe is that same word again. The great chapter. The judgment that falls from heaven is immense. Another thing that's hard to miss about these seven bowls is that they mirror the seven trumpets so closely. That's hard to miss. And here, I'm actually going to quote an extended section from John Walvert's commentary on Revelation because there's been discussion, even as we've gone through this, how do we understand this? From what theological perspective? And I've been quoting 
a number who are from different traditions than some of you are used to because they are so helpful in their deep and detailed work in the text. John Walbert is, is a, just a hero in the dispensational movement, and we're a good ways in to Revelation at this time. And yet, listen to how he described, first of all, the connection between the trumpets and the bowls, but then also how to anticipate, how to appreciate where we are at this stage. We are just not that far apart in terms of our understanding of how all of this works, even this far into the book, and it's helpful just to reflect on that. If you remember back at the start when we were talking about different approaches to the book of Revelation, and we finished that by identifying how many things we agree on. I think that's underscored again here. Listen to Walbert's words summarizing the similarities between the trumpets and the bowls and what we do with that. He said they both deal with first the earth or the land, that's the first of each, second the sea, Third, the rivers and springs of water, and he's giving references for each one from chapter 8 and chapter 16. And then the sun and moon and stars with regard to the trumpets, but only the sun is mentioned when we come to the fourth seal in, here in Revelation 16, verses 8 and 9. So those are the first four. Then the fifth trumpet dealt with the demon possession, with the sun and the sky darkened in chapter 9 as it opened, which is similar to the fifth bowl in which the darkness will cover the earth and sores will cause agony among men, chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. The sixth trumpet deals with the river Euphrates, and the sixth bowl will dry up the Euphrates. The seventh trumpet implies that the great tribulation is coming to its end, and that's at the seventh trumpet, 11, 15 to 19, a passage that has been significant for us throughout this time. And the seventh bowl of the wrath of God records a loud voice from heaven saying, it is done. So likewise, the seventh bowl in 1617, it is finished. It's coming to an end with the resulting destruction of the earth by earthquake and hail, which is also included in the seventh trumpet. End quote. It's an amazing parallel between these two sequences of seven judgments. But there are also differences. Continuing with Walvard. In the trumpet judgments, generally speaking, a third of the earth or heaven is afflicted, whereas in the bold judgments, the effects of the judgments are on the entire earth and are much more severe and final in character, end quote. I'd actually say that's precisely the point of the parallel. It's precisely the intent of this comparison. Namely, the trumpets were preliminary and therefore partial in their destruction, and the bowls are final and therefore complete. But in their parallel, we're actually seeing that the progression is very much the same. The intensification of the birth pangs as the end is drawing near. In this sense, the very same progression. I'm going to go back to Walbert for a moment. Accordingly, 
it seems best to follow the interpretation which has long been in the church that the seven bowls are an expansion of the seventh trumpet. Just as the seven trumpets are an expansion of the seventh seal. The order is climactic. It's increasing. The order is climactic and the judgments become more intensive and extensive as the second coming of Christ approaches. Intensification of birth pangs. And then one final sentence from Walward. And indications are that the bold judgments fall with trip-hammer rapidity on a world that is already reeling under previous judgments and world war, end quote. That's helpful. That is a helpful assessment, helpful in many ways, recognizing that that which oftentimes divides us in the interpretation of this complex letter needn't be so. Let's walk through them quickly now. The first bowl. The first bowl in verse 2 of chapter 16 brought judgments in the form of harmful and painful sores afflicting the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second bowl killed every living thing in the sea by poisoning the salt water such that it became like the blood of a corpse, we read here, recalling really the first plague of Egypt when Aaron and Moses turned the water to blood. The third bowl continued this very same theme, turning now fresh water to blood. Verse 4, and this reference here to the angel in charge of the waters in verse 5 is unclear. We don't know who that angel is, but many point out that the Jews did believe that angels were assigned responsibility for different specific areas of the universe. They oversaw different things, cities and so forth. So it's not hard to think that there might be an angel in charge of the waters especially the waters that people drink. And the words of this angel, as these fresh waters are turned to blood, affirmed complete agreement with the judgments that were falling during this time. Judgments that the martyrs under the altar back in chapter 6 had been longing for, praying for, Lord God, how long until you avenge our blood on the earth? Standing in the very presence of God, still longing for the resolution of all of these matters. That tells us something about departed brothers and sisters joining that multitude, but waiting still along with us for the day of resurrection. Verse 5, here's that angel's expression of agreement. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. Again, no longer who is to come, because at this point, Jesus has come. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. Right? They've shed the blood of prophets, they're going to drink blood. It's what they deserve 
the text says. The text says that. It's what they deserve there, 16.6. So there is that meticulous measuring of these judgments that we've talked about. This isn't just God getting angry and finally retaliating, running out of patience. This is the pure and upright, holy, holy, holy God finally saying, it's finished, it's done. I have waited, 2 Peter 3, as long as possible for all to come to repentance and faith. The full number. But in the end, judgment will fall on those who refuse Christ. Those who refuse the way of escape. And the angel here is affirming, yes, your judgment fell on Jesus For those who receive Him as their sin-bearer, and it will fall on them personally if they reject Him. That's just. That's holy. They've shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, those who have brought them this good news. They are now in judgment being given blood to drink. Verse 7, and I heard the altar, and I'm assuming that's those under the altar in the presence of God who've been asking, how long? And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And from that, I think we could add, although it's dangerous to add things to this book, we'll see that in the final chapter. I don't think it's added. I think we're reading what's the intent here. True and just are your judgments, including their timing. So these folks that have been asking how long, they're perfectly satisfied with what God is doing here in the pouring out of his judgments. The fourth bowl, verse 9, allowed the sun, or I'm sorry, verse 8, allowed the sun to burn people with fire. But look at this now in verse 9. They were scorched with fire by the fierce heat, the great heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent or give Him glory. That's what's evidenced through these. Unless God comes in and rescues some, all would be in this state. Salvation is of the Lord, and we see it right to the end. These folks who were feeling and being burned by the sun, they did not repent or give Him glory. Think of the absurdity of cursing your tormentor when he's demonstrated not only good character, but absolute power. And yet that's the response of the wicked in the days of the final outpouring of the judgment of God. The fifth bowl, verse 10, targeted the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness and it it brought this bowl painful sores such that people gnawed their tongues in anguish. The cause of the darkness and sores here isn't mentioned. But if we pick up on that parallel with the seven trumpets, perhaps it would be of benefit to go back and see what happened with the fifth trumpet. We may get an idea, and I believe we do. 
There, these things happened, this, this darkness and painful sores happened when, remember, the star fallen from heaven to earth was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened it and smoke arose and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, demons as we identified them there, and they were given power like scorpions. They were allowed to torment those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads, and their torment was like a scorpion when it stings. That's what we read back in chapter 9. Perhaps that sets the context here for chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. More important at the moment than where this came from, though, is what the text actually does give us. How did these people respond? Well, once again, verse 11, they cursed the God of heaven and did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl, verse 12, on the great river Euphrates, and it its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. That's an ominous thought. Who are the kings of the east? No one really knows. I love what Greg Bill included in his commentary here, and I, I, I think he's talking in actual real numbers here, not symbolic apocalyptic numbers. A survey of 100 commentaries on the book of Revelation reveals at least 50 interpretations of the identity of the kings of the East. <laughs> I feel very safe and confident in saying we don't know who these guys are. <laughs> but almost certainly, this is talking about removing the natural barrier along the east side of the promised land. That's the river Euphrates was recognized as that border leaving God's people vulnerable to pagan hordes from that direction. And then one more quote from Beale because he uses the same language that Walver did a few minutes ago for where we're at in this progression. He said the simplest and best explanation is that this refers to kings or rulers from the Orient, from the East, who will participate in the final world war. We're not that far apart. But the image changes quickly from pagan kings from the east to Satan himself, his demons, and his earthly helpers, confirming that all of these are in league together against the Lamb. Verse 13, and I saw coming out of the mouths of the dragon, out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, by the way, this is the first time that the second beast is called the false prophet, and then it'll happen twice more before the end of this letter. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. Again, why frogs as an image of evil spirits? We don't know. I would just say that it's one more resonance with the plagues of Egypt. We went from the first plague with blood to the second with frogs here, and these frogs representing demons from the pit of hell. You can see that in the very next verse, verse 14, for they are demonic spirits. These frogs are representative of demonic spirits. 
performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world. So, again, they're not frogs. They're they're going to take on some sort of personage in order to go and do their work around the world, going abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then verse 16, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon, just as was foretold by the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah 12 verse 11, the place of the final battle. Now, here's what God's people need to know. They needed to know it back then. We need to know it today. We need to know it every day until Christ returns here in the midst of this is what God's people need to know. It's set off in parentheses, I think appropriately so, here in chapter 16, but it's the words of Jesus. It's first person from the Savior Himself when He says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. There's that language from the Olivet Discourse. What is being quoted here? That means at an hour you do not expect. That's the whole point of talking about a thief breaking into your home. If you knew when He was coming, Luke makes this point, you would be there and stop Him. But because you don't, that's exactly what the image is used for. You don't know when I'm coming. I'm going to come at an hour that you don't know. Blessed, therefore, is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked. That just means unprepared, unprepared for his arrival. Live in a state of preparedness, that's stay awake that he might not go about naked and be seen exposed, that his unpreparedness might not be played out for all to see. And my friends, this, blessed is the one who stays awake. This is always the instruction for believers awaiting Jesus' return. Always. Let's go to the seventh bowl first, then we're going to come back to that point. The seventh bowl then is the end, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple, out of the presence of God, from the throne. All right? Explicitly connecting these two here, that the temple in heaven is the place of the throne. It's the throne room that we saw in chapter 4, saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, a great earthquake such as had there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. We've seen this before, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 11. This is the sign of the end, and it keeps recurring and coming back and punctuating the finality of the last things. Verse 19, the great city upon all of this happening was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. And that's what we'll see in the next two chapters, 17 and 18, unpacking essentially verse 19 here. And every island fled away and no mountains would be found. The mountains were collapsing. The islands were sinking. That's essentially what John is saying. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each. Pray to God that that's apocalyptic, but there's no reason to believe it's not literal. Fell from heaven on people, on people, 
I'm reminded of the images from Old Testament prophets about when God shoots to kill. When he fires his arrow, do you think he misses? No, never. Never. Nor will he miss when he hurls hundred-pound hailstones. And how did they respond? Just as we've seen, third round, they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so great. So ends this text. What are God's people to do? What are we to do with this? Jesus himself tells us, I said we'd come back to verse 15, we need to come back to verse 15. Jesus himself tells us what to do right here. The question is, do you have ears to hear, to pick up the language of this very letter? Do you have ears to hear what to do with these teachings? Blessed is the one who stays awake. That's what Jesus says. Blessed, approved by God, are those who stay awake. Of all of the other things that we could think of that we could do with this teaching, stay awake is what Jesus actually said is our response. And enjoying the approval of God is the state we find ourselves in as we hear this charge. Stay awake. This doesn't mean we can never go to sleep. The people of God sleep very comfortably. It's one of the images of the Psalms. I love it. So it doesn't mean that we can never go to sleep. It means that we live in a state of readiness for Jesus' return. And in that, all interpretive schools agree. We live in a state of readiness for Jesus' return. We look for it. We, we long for it. We pray for it. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We receive every evidence of the sinfulness of our surroundings as a reminder that this world is not our home. We receive every indicator of his inbreaking judgments. Hurricanes, hailstones, earthquakes, even thunder and lightning. We receive his inbreaking judgments as a reminder that he will indeed return. And we exhibit our confidence in His return not by, not by trying to read these signs and figure out when He's coming, but by living in a state of readiness as though it could be today. That's how we do it. We exhibit our confidence in His return not by trying to read these signs and figure out when it will happen, but by living in a state of readiness for it as though it could be today. That's what it means to stay awake. As each of the other gospel writers, John right here, 
But as each of the other gospel writers record Jesus' own sermon on the end times, his promised return, they wrote down the same thing John recorded here. Matthew 24, verses 42 and following. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Mark chapter 13, verses 35 and following. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, Mark recorded Jesus as saying, stay awake. Luke 21, verse 36, but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Stay awake. That's our calling. That's our calling. So what does it look like? How do we stay awake? What are we supposed to do if it's simple and clear and direct like that and we have all of the testimony of this glorious letter behind us saying those with the mark of the living God on their foreheads who've trusted in Christ as Savior and received His Holy Spirit, you will be protected and kept through all of this, however much of it you see with your own eyes. And stay awake. That's all we're told to do. So what does it look like? What does it look like? There's a few quick examples from right here in this body. I heard this past week about a text thread that was circulating among some of our women. They're discussing this letter together with one another on Tuesdays. A text thread going around encouraging one another with passages that remind them that Jesus has saved us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, Romans 5, and other passages that, that say the same thing but not quite in that same language. But when we've got our women encouraging one another to stay awake and to remember to live today in today's challenges, today's struggles, reminded that Jesus has saved us from the wrath to come. That's staying awake. Similar communications happen among our men via text or, or phone conference during the week. Blessed to hear about those linkages between people Stirring up one another, the men are, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we might say, to use biblical language. And to do that between Sundays, that's staying awake. That's what it looks like. A body speaking to one another and encouraging one another on toward love and good deeds. Keeping watch over one another, warning one another, lest any of us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's staying awake. That's what it looks like. Keeping our eyes fixed on the return of the Lord and encouraging one another to do the same. That's what we're trying to do in our Awana ministry midweek, our youth ministry 
as we disciple kids and supplement to Christian homes and moms and dads. We're helping them learn to stay awake. We're helping them normalize this bizarre Christian experience in a fallen world where we have unseen enemies fighting against us. We're helping them get ready for that. Memorizing the Word of God. Wielding a double-edged sword to use the language of Psalm 149 that we're actually going to look at at the family dinner this evening. Helping our kids to understand the implications of the fact that the gospel is true. That Jesus is real. That His salvation delivers us from something. Namely, the judgment of God. And that that coming judgment is inescapable. They need to know that. It's inescapable. Either it falls on Jesus on your behalf or it falls on you. Those are the only options. That's what it looks like to stay awake. To remember what's true. Everything else around us is telling us it's false and should be held at bay. Keep awake. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6. My friends, that is our calling. And if you will, let's pray now together and seek God to enable us to do just that. As I pray, let's have the musicians and communion servers come to the front. Heavenly Father, this is a hard and sobering text of Scripture. And yet we see in this very passage, Lord God, that you have not left us alone to figure out on our own what to do with this knowledge that you in your grace and mercy have put before us. This information that we struggle to understand and and know what to do with, but then we recognize here and there you have inserted these parentheses again and again, just letting your people know what this means for them. Well, Father, I know, reading articles recently on the trauma that comes from studying eschatology in the church and how there are support groups online for people who have, who have been frightened out of their minds by this stuff. And understandably so, it's frightening. But, oh, Father, I pray that, first of all, you would anchor our confidence in the true and living God and in the work that Jesus has done for us and in a deepened understanding of what was accomplished at the cross that is now ours by faith and what it saves us from even as we talk about what it saves us to. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be ever more courageous witnesses to this great and amazing good news that we enjoy and that we have been blessed and privileged to proclaim together to this ever-darkening world. As the darkness encroaches, Lord God, help the light of the church to shine brightly 
by the very power of the crucified, risen, and returning Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit you have given us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, the mark of the seal of the living God. Help us to live in that power, guided by your most holy word, rejoicing in the salvation that is ours and proclaiming it to all who hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.